My name is Scott Weiss, and you're listening to Let's Get to Work, the podcast series that dives deep into recruiting and hiring trends, the global workforce, the future of work, job search tips, technology, and more. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Let's Get to Work. I'm your host, Scott Weiss. You know, a couple weeks ago, I was on my couch scrolling through Amazon uh, instant video, as I often do, spending way too much time trying to figure out what I'm going to watch next, when I came across a trailer for a documentary called Charged, and I thought it looked really interesting. So I queued it up and was fortunate enough to watch the entire documentary, the story of Eduardo Garcia. Eduardo is an American celebrity chef. He's the co-founder of Montana Mex, a Mexican food company based in Montana. He's known as the bionic chef because he cooks with a prosthetic left arm, which is the result of an accident uh, he incurred while hiking in 2011, which is the subject of the documentary. It's It's a great, great documentary film. I watch a lot of documentaries, probably three or four a week, and this has been one of my favorites. And we're really fortunate to have Eduardo with us here today to talk about his career, his experiences as uh, an entrepreneur, of course, how his life has been affected by his accident. And uh, you guys are going to get a good opportunity to get to know this guy really well. So welcome, Eduardo. It's great to have you. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Eduardo, let's jump right in. You went, you grew up in Montana. Um, I understand uh, your father, why don't you give me a little bit of, of, about your background in terms of your childhood and then take us up to the point of where you moved to Seattle to go to school at the Art Institute. Yeah, so um, originally you know, I was born in 1981, Van Nuys, California. Um, I think when we were around six years old, my mom moved us kids up to Southwest Montana. Um, you know, my dad actually was not a part of that move. My dad, originally from the Yucatan of Mexico, Cancun to be specific, um, my dad was in in and out of my life pretty quickly. Um, so I didn't know my dad from the age of two months old until I met him again at 13. Um, so when we made that move at six, it was my twin brother, my older sister, my mom, and we moved to Southwest Montana, um, which for me, you know, at six years old, you're fairly impressionable. And, you know, I, I was a very curious kid. So being six and rolling into Yellowstone National Park and the mountains, the snow, the animals everywhere, it was, I mean, I, I thought it was the best thing there was. Um, and then now, as a 38-year-old, having been here for 32 years, it's been home. It will be home. It's very much a place that has made me. So are you now in the same part of Montana where you were raised? Yep, still down, still in southwest Montana. Okay, mm-hmm. nice. And so um, tell me, how did you make it from, wh- like, when did cooking become a thing? I know you went to art school in Seattle. Did you initially intend to pursue a career in the culinary arts, or did you kind of discover that as part of your creative journey? Uh, it, well, I think it it, it 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 definitely was a part of the creative journey, which largely could be just our journey at large. Um, but food specifically came into my wheelhouse at 15 years old when I just wanted a job. I was a teenager, you know, dreaming about season passes to the ski hill and finding my first fly fishing rod and getting a car, you know, and so kind of put one and one together and said, well, I think I just need to work. 
and so applied to be a prep cook at a local um there's a local hot spring that's sort of been built out to be a resort and they had a bar and grill and were hiring so that was my first um paying job of my life at 15 and just so happened to be food got it and so from there uh did you decide to actually take it a step further and go and like study the art of cooking? Is that what drew you to Seattle? And, and, and was that your initial thought was that you'd learn how to do this professionally? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, um, you know, like every other high school kid out there, you know, your, your junior year, you're starting to probably think quite seriously for some, not so seriously for others, but um, you're starting to think, where am I going post high school? What do I want to be doing? Am I going to college? If so, what's my degree? What's my focus? And um, from my end, my junior year, I, you know, I'd already been cooking um, for the past year prior. And so it just, I had, the, you know, it was a job and I worked all the way through high school. So junior year, senior year, I don't think it's I knew what I wanted to do. You know, there was nothing ling. You know, I was I wanted to be a photographer. You know, as a kid. So, um, and it just so happened that there, there was a um, there was a presentation, or you know, you can help me out, Scott. I don't know what the correct wording is because it's been a while since I've been in high school. But I think there's representatives from universities and trade schools that sort of make the the loop. You know, and they go and they hit up schools and they give open forum demonstrations or presentations to any kids that want to sit in plus faculty. And there was a rep from the Art Institute of Seattle um, who was at our school. And I remember sitting in because I love I love art. And so I thought I'd sit in. I hadn't really even thought of a trade school yet. And I remember just connecting the dots of, oh, wow, I can go to school for cooking. Well, I'm currently cooking. Maybe I'll go to school and not know what I'll do with it. But maybe that's, you know, I kind of there was a part of me that knew that if I graduated from high school without an outlet, without po- any post educational plan that I I knew, I just knew that I would probably jump into a, a van or a truck or and, and disappear into the Rocky Mountains in, in a never ending pursuit of rock climbing and fly fishing and hiking and being outside. And I kind of saw where that was going to go. You know, I was just like the forever dirt bag, like, you know, awesome live outside lifestyle. And yet, um, you know, knowing my personality, I I just knew like I I need to I need to be plugged into something that allows me to really align my interests and my purpose. I need to be productive. Otherwise, you know, idle hands are the devil's playpen. So that's that was kind of I said, well, you know, Arden Sioux, Seattle Culinary School. Let's see what happens. Nice. Yeah, it's funny because you yeah. it's you think back now as an adult on the choices that you make as a 17 or 18 year old and you really don't have the benefit of wisdom at that age. And in your case, you know, it sounds like a single mother. Um, you didn't really have sort of the father that you could. I mean, you probably knew where your dad was and what he was up to. But, you know, I don't know if maybe he was modeling or maybe he was modeling what you didn't want your life to become. That's probably a whole nother conversation. But um, you kind of just take the steps that are put in front of you at the time and you, uh, you know, in hindsight, you look back and you go, it's interesting choices that I made. But in your case, it seemed like the obvious choice. Um, obviously, you demonstrated that you're a, a, a diverse person in that you've got this creative side to you, but you also have a part of you where you wanted some stability. You wanted to be able to do something productive and just running around, like you said, living the dirtbag life. 
you know, maybe there was a way that you could do that, but also be a productive member of society in a more traditional way was probably your thinking at the time. In part, yes. Moreover, to be honest with you and whoever is listening and watching, I knew at a young age that I had a personality that, you know, would tend towards, um, you know, I had had a very small but strong enough history to remember in, in through my high school years of, you know, drinking alcohol at a young age and smoking and experimenting with drugs. And, you know, I, I think a lot of a lot of kids in the world do, at, you know, the, during their teenage years. And yet for me, I, I think in that short period of time, I was able to recognize that it was it was too, you know, the, the sugar was the sugar of that life was too sweet. You know, the nectar was too strong. And and I needed to be cautious with that. And and if I just kind of like gave myself up to pursuing a recreation, a recreational and joy, you know, fun, whatever I want to do based life versus something that was really defined and designed by more purpose with a little bit more structure to it that I, you know, it would take me a long time to recover from that kind of a life, you know? Yeah. So it sounds so, like you actually had quite a bit of wisdom then for being such a young guy, which, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, probably most people don't. And so the fact that you were able to kind of recognize that about mm -hmm. yourself early on, I think is a testament to, you know, you're probably like an old soul, right? You were somebody at a young age who kind of saw things with a much bigger viewpoint than your years would kind of, uh, allow it to be. But regardless, you wound up in Seattle Art Institute. And um, is that where you actually started to study kind of the culinary arts? Maybe you hooked up with a restaurant here in Seattle and kind of kept going down that path? Yeah, so I'd been cooking, you know, and, and how do you define professionally, but I had been cooking for a paycheck since I was 15. So when I graduated high school, I'd been cooking for three years. And went to the Art Institute of Seattle as a way to just learn the details, learn the methodology, get get a little bit more of a tight education on the history of food. And and I cooked um, I cooked at a variety of restaurants uh, in Belltown, uh, in downtown Seattle while I was in school. I lived there for a total of two years. Nice. And uh, you had good experiences yeah. here in Seattle? You liked it here? Oh, yeah. Just the, the food scene, it was kidney candy storm you know it was just I, I absolutely loved being immersed in a culturally rich um food community was, especially at that young age you know at the age of 18 going to school so you're firing all day long and your brain is just absorbing everything it can and then i would go to i would go to work i would go to a, whatever restaurant i was working at the time and it was almost a really interesting dichotomy of the two that you could sit in a classroom and for four hours really crunch down on making something like a, a clear chicken stock. I mean, we were, I'm telling you, we would spend days, 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 you know, classes on how to just make broth. And we would sit there and sample and demo 30 different batches that everyone in the room had done and talk about the nuances. And so there was, there was the, the schooling, but then school would end and I would go clock in at work and it was like, you're in the restaurant industry now. This is work. This is not school. We need a chicken broth in five minutes right now. Or, you know, it's a, the time frame went from academic to real life all in the same day. So it was actually like a really, it was actually a very constructive time period in my life where I was able to get the slow and low teaching and then the application to follow in nice. restaurants. And did you start to feel yeah. like you were developing a passion for what you were doing? Um, I, I imagine you're the kind of guy that, 
you bring passion to whatever it is you're doing. But a lot of times with work and careers and jobs, you know, you've got people that are trying to figure out how do I align my passion and my zest for life with the fact that I have to go and make a paycheck. Were you able to bridge that pretty early on? Um, I think, yes. The, yes, I, I felt a passion for the work at an early age. And yet I would say that, I would, I would add that, um, I don't know. Okay, this is great. Just let's take the word passion. I mean, the passion we feel for relationships in high school is going to be very different than the passion we feel in our 20s and 30s when we're getting married, having kids, you know, maybe a little bit narrower focus, a little bit more constructive, you know. And so for me, um, I think my passion for food and cooking at that time period in my life was really it revolved around the energy of the kitchen. Uh, the, it was a Com the camaraderie, the teamwork, the creativity, um, you know, and, and sort of the engagement of the whole process. Like, I love the front of the house process, watching a plate of food go out and the diner's reactions. Like, I love, love, loved all that. And yet, I would say now, and, you know, now I experience a, a, different, a different approach to my passion for food. But I, I would say that, that cooking has always been based off of an experience here starting with me which has been a positive like aerating oxygenating experience right like an experience that I truly have enjoyed throughout my history with it but you hit on something really interesting there which is if you think back to those early days of the passion you were developing for what you were doing you said it was more the camaraderie and the energy and the teamwork and so I think that's an mm -hmm. interesting takeaway because it probably translates out of the kitchen into anything. So whether you're a, uh, your first job is a checkout guy at a grocery store or you're working as a receptionist in an office, it's maybe not so much the, the what you're doing, but it's the who you're doing it with and how you're doing it and why you're doing it. Um, but that energy and that positive feeling. And you know, if you're in an, in an environment where you're not getting that, it probably doesn't matter what you're doing. You could be doing the coolest thing in the world, but if you're not getting a good vibe from it, you're not going to probably have that passion. So, so much of where that comes from, it sounds like in your case, was the people you were working with, the teamwork, the culture, the energy, kind of thoughts on that? I mean, I, uh, I guess the thought would be um, that our, our interests have the ability to migrate throughout our, our life, and that's okay. Um, and, and yet, if we've learned anything, it's... Uh, if I've learned anything, um, it's it's maybe to really just double down on why why we're doing something, you know, because um, kind of w the weather can come and go, things can be joyful and sorrowful, things can be hard and be easy, and yet I think those adjectives describe short-lived moments in time, and yet where I'm at now is really appreciating appreciating what food has become for me, which has, it has sort of like helped me align my why, which is connecting with people and adding value to others' lives. And food has become a, a sort of a conduit, if you will, you know, it's become sort of the language with which I communicate and connect and add value and contribute and leave legacy. So, you know, when I, when I said early on that my passion has matured or migrated throughout this whole process, it's, it's been super enjoyable. And I think it's, it's, you know, it's normal for that to happen. 
And yet I'm grateful to have seen and witnessed and allowed my passion for food and cooking to develop and roll with it. Because, you know, for sure there's times when it's, you know, hasn't been the easiest um, job to be in, you know. Yeah. And, and I we're going to come back to your story in terms of, you know, where you went after uh, school and all that. But just because we're on this point, I want to hit on something. And I talk about this a lot, which is I think for a lot of people that are just getting started in their career, um, there's a struggle of you're raised to kind of, you know, you hear this mantra, do what you love and the money will follow, follow your passion. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's some truth there. But I also think the greatest freedom is to fall in love with what you're doing. Um, and ultimately, like yeah. you said, figure out what what is the why? Like, why are you doing what you're doing? For me, I just happen to have a natural ability at recruiting. It was never something that I dreamt of doing. Um, in fact, for many years, I struggled with it where it was like, OK, I'm going to do this while I figure out what I'm really supposed to do. And then I got to a point where mm-hmm. I realized that, like f- for you with food, this skill has become a catalyst to give me the things in my life that I want, the why. I want to be self-employed. I want to have the flexibility to spend time with my family. I want to be able to pursue other projects Mm -hmm. on the side. And so you start to fall in love with it from that perspective. So uh, my advice that Mm -hmm. I like to give to people is, you know, if you do what you love, in your case, if you had done what you loved, you would have been rock climbing, right? That, and you probably would have never gotten off the mountain. I mean, that, that's what you loved. But you got to find something that you're naturally good at or that comes easy to you and that the world seems to respond to. Figure out your why, what you're trying to get at long term, and then figure out a way to fall in love with that thing that comes naturally to you. Because if you can do that, then the sky's the limit. I think um, you can kind of break out mm. of the kind of the, the prison of your own mind of, God, why can't I just do what I love? Figure out how to love what it is right. you do. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, we're, get, we're kind of jumping ahead, and I want to reference things that we haven't discussed yet, but um, I think following my experience of the last 10 years um, and coming so close to dying in, in, you know, in 2011. Um, I think my, my thought process on, on it now is, is fairly, is fairly, fairly simplified and, and, and just pretty resolute in that, um, whatever, whatever it is that I decide to do or I engage in, or I, you know, whatever positions I put myself in, I have, done so only because I truly want to be there. And I know that sounds lofty and idealistic and is easier to break. It's easier to say than not say, or it's easier to say than it is to do perhaps. But effectively what that means is that, um, I, I no longer live in fear of being myself. I no longer live in fear for standing for my truth. And so when making a business decision or a personal decision on where to go or what to do or how to do what you love, it, you know, I kind of simplify it by just only engaging in things that set me on fire, only engaging in things that I truly want to do. Um, I think about it every time I fly, I fly twice a week for work and, um, and, you know, I flying for me, even though I fly so often, doesn't become an inconvenience. It doesn't become this sort of um, burden that I believe flying represents for so many people, unless you're going on vacation to Cancun, <laughs> you know, but, fly, you know, 
for me, it's it's a work day. It, uh, you know, I'm I'm up, I'm working, I'm doing, I'm acting. I get to where I'm going, and, and today is a long work day. I start at six and I end at eleven, but here I am. You know, and as long as the plane doesn't fly out of the sky, then we're good. And so I use I use I just use my time productively, and I don't lament the decisions I've made because I've made those decisions because I I stand for them. I believe in them. Does that make sense? I'm getting a little abstract no, it, and out no, it there. No, it does, but... and I and I think. Um... This is the kind of stuff that I wanted to try to get out of you because I think, you know, when, when you've experienced what you experienced, which our listeners, our listeners will hear about in a moment, which is a near death, um, I went through the same thing. Uh, when I was 21, I was basically on life support in an alcohol-induced coma off a 21 run in Tucson, Arizona. And it was a, um, I don't know if I'm going to say it was a life-changing experience, but you certainly come out of something like that with a different perspective on the world. And I feel like it was one mm. of the greatest blessings because I'm able to kind of look at things probably in, in, a, in a similar way to you where you recognize that there's no point in doing things that don't make you happy, right? And even if that means changing right. your own, not necessarily your value structure, but maybe that means you're not gonna have the mansion on the lake, or maybe that means you're not gonna be driving the fancy cars or God knows what other whatever materialistic things you're trying to build up. but it ultimately doesn't matter because you have to enjoy every moment because it's so precious. And so I think that was what attracted me to your story is that I feel like I, I have, you know, my experience wasn't near as dramatic as yours. Um, but it was similar in the sense that I probably shouldn't have survived and I did. So you, you spend the rest of your mm -hmm. life kind of wondering what that means, right? What are you here to do? What's your greater purpose? So on that note, let's jump ahead. So you mm. you finish up in Seattle, and then is that when you take your job as a yacht chef, which I know you did for a little while? Yeah. So I was I was graduating uh, May of two thousand one, and had a yacht chef opportunity come up, and ended up taking my first job as a yacht chef uh, October of two thousand eleven, and then. Yeah, stuck with stuck with the career, stuck with that industry all the way through um, the spring of 2011. So good, so, good solid run, I would say. So you worked on a like a private yacht that people would charter for a week or two at a time, and you were part of the kitchen crew on that on that yacht. Yeah, so I, I was a effectively I was a crew member. So it, depending on the size of the boat and 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 the boat, um, you know, its program. But um, I was a crew member on a ship, on a boat, and the boats ranged from 70 feet all the way up to 160 feet. And, um, you know, thank goodness my job was not only to cook for the crew and the guests. And in all of my jobs, I was a solo chef. But thank goodness I also um, was able to help on the outside or drive the drive, the drive or um, participate in the other super cool and interesting nuances of boating, right? Of boat life. Um, because again, I think for me, diversification um, is, is a great way to keep your passions alive. Got it. So you had a nice run doing that, making a living, kind of living this life out on the water. And then at what point right. do you wind up back in, I believe it was Montana where you had your accident. Is that correct? Yeah. So 2010, I had started to um, pro started to create the paper plan and the creative plan with um, my girlfriend at the time, and with two of my family members, my brother and sister, 
And we started designing the business model and plan for the company Montana Max, which we now run and own. And um, and then we at the same time, Jenny Jane is her name. Jenny Jane and I also started to develop a pitch for for an outdoor cooking television show. And the thought would be that the business would be the um, sort of product extension of my cooking for me to, sh- you know, a way, an outlet and a way for me to share my food ethos with the world. And then the television cooking show would be in, you know, an additional arm of the same brand effectively and, and an opportunity for me to share my love and passion for cooking over a fire, specifically, you know, you know, working outside, foraging, hunting, fishing, um, and, and again, both vehicles for sharing my love and passion for food with others. One is an entertainment-based, message information-based. The other is um, is more nutritional and product-based. Um, so we slowly started developing those plans. And in 2011, I left um, I left the boat officially to come home and continue pioneering those businesses. Got it. And so did did you start producing episodes of this video series? Did anything get out there online or on TV? We so we developed we developed a what's called a sizzle reel, which is basically just a um, it's a uh, like a demo reel for the show, and we developed a sizzle reel and we had shopped it out there to um, the industry, and we had picked up an agent and uh, at William Morris Endeavor, and we had also picked up a production partner, Citizen Pictures out of Denver. And we were well on our way to getting, you know, selling this show really to um, places like Discovery and National Geographic and even the Food Network at the time, um, you know, wanted first right of refusal on the show concept. So we we had all these things in development and, and working. Yeah. And it's a, it's a process. Yeah, it's a process, of course. And um, and is that around the time when you uh, were on this kind of notorious hike when you made this encounter that led to this accident? Is this around that same time? Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that if you want. Um, so we, I came home off the yachts in May and was working on the business throughout the summer. And in October, it's dead in the middle of archery season in Montana. I'm a passionate outdoorsman. As a chef and forager, hunting is one of the paramount ways for me to stay connected with my passion for cooking, with the supply chain where food grows and where it comes from. And um, I was archery hunting and happened to cross a metal can that was lodged in the ground. If you're from the Rocky Mountains or if you've spent a lot of time in the Rocky Mountains, it's not uncommon to see mining detritus and um, trash from old homestead camps. And so for me and or metal cans that look just like this can that I saw for ranchers and farmers to put um, salt blocks for cows that are out on the national forest on a lease. And so, in other words, I explain all of that to so many people when I say I saw a can in the middle of the woods, like a metal can, like a 50-gallon oil drum. It's hard to imagine why that would be there. And yet, for me, it didn't really, I didn't bat an eye. And so, when I came up to the can, I saw a pile of fur within the can, and I saw the, what I, what I saw, what I thought I saw was maybe like a decimated arm of an animal and a claw, claws attached to it. And so... You know, I didn't think more than just a second. I thought, well, maybe I'll just grab a claw as a memento, as a keepsake, as a not, you know, for the curiosity case, or as a, you know, uh, nature, you know, development tool for kids 
you know, show and tell. And I went to just grab the knife, put it on my left hand, reached down to cut the cloth. And at that point, you know, I didn't realize anything. I was electrocuted with 2,400 volts and um, on my back flat, you know. Life-changing moment, just like that. Yeah, to say the least. Yeah, and honestly, for anybody that's listening, you would uh, be well advised to go watch the documentary because it really gets into the nuances of of the accident and why there was electricity in that metal can and you know and and what's become of it since then and and really the the film focuses on Eduardo's uh, recovery journey and so um, you know you talk about being a guy who's kind of got everything. You've got the whole, your, the world is your oyster. You've got plans to have a TV show. You've got a business that you're putting together with your girlfriend. You're an outdoorsman. You're, 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 you're kind of young and vibrant. And then this happens and then you wake up and you find yourself in the hospital with all right. kinds of damage to your body. A doctor, multiple right. doctors telling you you're lucky to be alive. You shouldn't be alive. And facing right. the reality that life is going to look very, very different because now not only are you burned and do you have damage done to multiple parts of your body, but you're also now missing an arm. Your left arm is gone as a chef. Right. There it is. Yeah. You're telling me, man. I know. <laughs> well, I don't have to remind you, but for those of you yeah. listening, uh, that was yeah. Eduardo's reality. So the arm was amputated um, and you had to, Eduardo, in the documentary, you, you can see him spending time in the hospital with his, at the time, friend, girlfriend, partner, um, working through this. And what really jumped out to me about it, Eduardo, was the unbelievable positive energy that you, you brought. And, you know, granted, the cameras were there. I'm sure they edited out some of your rawer moments. But I think for anybody watching it, it's clear that you kind of just, you, you lit up the room as this guy that was like a, essentially a shell of your former self. Um, and your, your energy and your passion and your positive spirit really shone through. And I think that was what really captivated me as a viewer um, to learn more about your story and to keep watching because I couldn't believe how well you were dealing with that. And uh, I think that's mm -hmm. probably a testament to a lot of the things you've done in your life. But where, where does that come from? Like how, how were you able to bring such a positive energy to such a really traumatic experience and and not get down about it and i mean i'm sure you had your moments but at a high level you seem to really appreciate the fact that you were still here i mean i think you just said it you know the can you hear me scott yeah i hear you yep okay yeah no i think you just i think you just said what i would have said which is I, I don't have this, any secret sauce. I can, I wish I own a CPG company. I wish I could bottle it up and sell it. I mean, you know, but, um, I, the way that I operate and the way that I naturally am wired in combination with the tremendous support of a world-class medical team, a super powerful and compassionate and caring family and friend and caregiving team you know so i guess every ingredient was there for a really 
for the best result possible. You know, I had all the support from my family and friends. Um, I had the best medical care that I think you can get. And, and then the wild card, I guess maybe it's not a wild card because I know there's a lot of folks out there that maybe don't have that type of support, unfortunately. So, but you know, maybe it is a wild card because I think the one card that stands the same, I would think, and I hope, and, um, is, is the individual, you know, and, and the doctors, the medical community and the caregiving, you know, communities out there will probably say the same thing is that, you know, as caregivers and as help team, as the team of help, you can only do so much. And ultimately it does rely it's somewhere in some capacity, the individual has to fight, you know, the individual has to put in the time and, I'd like to think that there were moments when I was completely sub, you know, unconscious or not even with it. And yet somewhere deep inside, I knew to be fighting, you know, and, and, um, yeah. So I guess for me, naturally, that's my, that's kind of my way is to not sit down and give up, but rather to fight for it. And thank, thankfully, you know, through this experience, perhaps I'm in a better position to take a natural ability of mine or a natural way, a mannerism, you know, uh, just a modality of, of being and thought. And because of this injury and, and the 10 years that's passed, I've actually put a lot of time and energy into thinking, well, why am I the way I am? Or, you know, why did I survive that event? Why do I look at the glass half full? So, in a way, it's it's that I mean, even there, it's a point in case that for me, I don't look at this event as the worst day that ever happened to me. I look at this event as a super impactful time in my life that could have had dire and grave consequences, and yet here I am speaking through this digital device with you. You know, my home is warm. Thank goodness, I'm grateful. I know what I'm going to make for dinner. I'm grateful, and. And yet I get a, I get to reflect on this experience and try and try and dial down a little closer to what makes us all tick, specifically what makes me tick, you know? Yeah. And I think that it's a cathartic experience for anybody watching you go through this in the documentary, because I imagine the people that find themselves sitting in a traffic in Los Angeles, you know, feeling frustrated and feeling like life is a struggle or, you know, the little things day to day, your kids are irritating you, or you just want a five minute break, whatever it might be to see somebody like you at you're your, probably your could potentially be your lowest possible point. I mean, you're essentially chained to a bed. Um, you're missing an arm. You got burns all over the place. You can barely feed yourself. And dealing with it in a positive way, I think that's a valuable lesson in humanity. And I don't mean to sound like I'm going above and beyond here, but I think it really helps put things in perspective for people, which is why I think it's such an important documentary. And I'm so glad that it's out there. So Thanks. we won't get into all the, the juicy details about the recovery because anybody can go watch it. And it's, I think, a lot more interesting to see it than to hear us talk about it. But let's fast forward to you come out of this multi-year recovery phase and Montana Mex, the idea that you had for this business, um, still, still, it's still burning inside of you. How are you able to transition and really 
get get it going because it doesn't sound like it had mm. really taken off. Correct me if I'm wrong. Before the accident. Yeah. So what what happened with Montana Max during this whole time period and effectively um, again thank thank goodness for team and community and partners. Um, but really, when we started when we when we started Montana Max we. We started as a farmer's market brand, developing recipes, testing feedback from the community in real time. And I think we had visions of um, being a company with a retail walk-in, walk-out storefront that would support the grocery um, back end of the business, um, which was, would be to have products selling in grocery. And when we were in ICU, what's just classic timing is that not only did you have myself in a bed in ICU, but you had um, Jenny Jane, who was a you know uh, running on marketing, our founder. You had Indra, uh, my sister, who was running operations, and you know you had the whole team because it was all family in the hospital. We had one employee at the time. Um, we had one employee at the time, seventeen years old, skater kid, Livingston, Montana. And, you know, effectively, we had to decide what to do. We were looking at probably being in ICU for a month. And so our miles, our employee plus friends made our deliveries, got the work done, made the orders happen. And then I think it was actually in in during that ICU stay when um, we, you know, we decided, well, do we shut this down? Like we barely even got started, but this is a pretty big blow. This is going to affect we, we didn't know what was going to happen to me. And we had built this brand, you know, we had built this brand really around like, what well, we're going to do this TV show. We're going to have this product line. And, and so it was such a place of unknown and it would have been very easy. You know, we maybe had like 40, 40, 40 K in, in scratch startup capital seed money to just get the concept going. We hadn't invested a lot into it really in regards to business standards. And it would have been so easy to shut the door and be like, all right, we're done. One less thing to think about. And and yet the opposite happened. You know, Jenny, my sister Indra, they had their laptops open in ICU in my room. You know, so I'm getting, you know, I'm maybe getting worked on or getting getting things done. Monitors are beeping and blurping and doing their thing. And and I was out of the critical period at this point, I think, you know, but sort of within a 50 day stay, 40 days of it was definitely rebuilding the business plan and figuring out, well, where's this business going to go? What do we want it to do? What do we want, want it to be? If, it were, if we're going to keep it open, what is this business going to be? And I think that's when we truly started to think of the business as being a grocery brand with shelf-stable products versus perishable products. So what I'm hearing you say is that before the accident, the, the startup had already started to take shape. There was some, there was some business flowing, maybe a few accounts, Mm -hmm. um, but you really had to kind of mold the entire vision together while you were in ICU, while you were in the hospital. And so in many ways, you, it's like you almost incubated the business from the hospital, sounds like, it, it, to some extent. Again, I can't speak for injury or Jen, right? I was, I was in bed, plugged up to a lot of machines, but I recall that we, we were really just working off of cocktail napkins, and then when the injuries happened, we, you know, Indra and Jen, we as a group collectively finished writing out what our business plan was going to be. So, you know, I think, that, yeah, where it would have been so easy to do the other. So the, having, the other option. Yeah. So you weren't kind of the solo 
entrepreneur at this point. I mean, you were part of a team and it sounds like the other yeah. team members really lifted you up and oh, kind yeah. of filled the oh, void. Yeah. You probably couldn't have done it if it had just been you. You would have had to have no. put that to bed. Yeah, that was point in case team where the supportive team, one person falls, the other take the weight lift up, you know. Yeah, and I think for anybody that's listening that is thinking about maybe going into business for themselves, they want to start a business, they want to be an entrepreneur, here's an example of the benefit of doing it with partners. You get electrocuted, you lose an mm -hmm. arm, you got partners there to help you <laughs> while you recover, right? You never know. Um, that's right. Uh, you know, not obviously not every entrepreneur can find partners. You fortunately had good people you trusted in your circle. But anyway, so you, the business gets up and running. You go through recovery. Now, Montana Max, essentially, the business is, as you said, they're non-perishable products. So what, what are some of the products that, that the, the business offers? Sure. So today, um, Montana Max is a manufacturing, manufacturing food company. And we create organic, non-GMO, natural condiments for the food space. So we have three different sauces, a barbecue, a ketchup, a hot sauce, a habanero sauce. Uh, so they're all, they're all what you call table sauces, um, free of corn syrup, free of um, any chemicals or additives, um, and non-GMO, organic. And as close to, you know, as close... They're, they're as close to what I would have made as a sauce if when I, you know, like they're all punted off of that time as a private chef, right? And so ultimately, how, how would I make, how, would, how do we bottle the representations of food that I would have made for others when I was private chefing? So we have a barbecue sauce, a habanero sauce, a ketchup. We also make three different seasoning blends for, um, you know, seasoning and sprinkling on your food or through your prep process or for finishing. And then we also have a cold press extra virgin non-GMO avocado oil. Um, so again, sort of a heart healthy approach to cooking. And as a lineup, um, we'd like to see our products as tools for you and others interested in creating wholesome meals. And um, we'd like to we like to see folks use these as tools to whatever party they want to throw, whatever dinner they want to make for their kids you know, but being a wholesome part of that act. Nice. And th these are direct to consumer products that we can buy online. We can buy in retail, I would imagine. Um, both. Yeah. You, you can go to montanamex.com and obviously all of our products are available there and please feel free and give it a spin. You, you know, you'd be more than welcome to read more about the company, about our charitable arm, uh, about our efforts to do more than just produce a food product but rather be a community driver um and then our products are outside of e-commerce our products are also available um i think give or take 11 1100 and growing stores throughout the united states nice and so you are part of the day-to-day -day operations of running this business now and you've got employees and what has the experience been like for you now being i don't know if we call you a business owner a partner um i don't know exactly what your role is in the organization but um, you know, looking back on your life as an employee of other people's businesses and now being the mm -hmm. employer, what do you think the greatest mm -hmm. shift has been for you? And what, you know, what has this experience been like for you from that perspective? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, 
I let out a small, I think that was a nervous laugh. Is that what you call a nervous laugh? I think so. But um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, so I've been a manager within the company and the chef for the brand and sort of publicity PR face for the brand for since we started. Um, and yet it was only in March of this last year, 2019, where I did step into the CEO role. And, um, and so currently, I guess my role is sort of the, the CEO of Montana Mex. And I'll tell you from my, from my table, from where I sit, um, it's, it's been a very humble process, you know, of realizing what you don't know, not being afraid to raise your hand to potentially your new hire or to employees that have been with you for some time and ask the questions, how does this happen? I don't actually know how this happens or can someone share this with me or educate me on this? Um, and so that part of the process has actually been very, it's been enjoyable. I'll be honest with you. You know, you can beat yourself up for not thinking you know enough about whatever the subject may be. In this case, we're talking about running a business and, and yet it's so surprising and it's not surprising. It's so rewarding and it feels so right that when, as a leader, when, when I'm honest with the team and with my community of, of partners and I just raise my hand and I say, Hey, here I am, I'm accounted for, I'm present, I'm standing here. And I, and I have a few questions. How do we do this? Or instead of bullshitting your team, you just respond with, I actually don't know how that happens. Hmm. How would you find that answer? I don't know where to get that. And so that has been actually really, I love that, right? Like this, this big bubble burst when I stepped into the role I thought, holy smokes, I, how am I going to do this? I've never done this. And yet there's been such a beautiful sort of um, opportunity of learning that it is truly collaborative, the team, the teamwork that happens to run run an enterprise. Um, so I've, I've really enjoyed that. And then I think the other part that um, I knew that I would, I knew that I would really um, get a lot out of is just driving, I guess, a little bit and, and not being afraid to pursue conversations or opportunities, not to poke and prod with the business and say, well, where can we go with this? And, um, and so although the role comes with a lot of responsibility, um, I, I do appreciate the ap ability and opportunity to do a little bit of discovery with the brand and put, put it out there safely, see what it can do, pull it back in. Yeah, and it sounds like you're really well supported and you hit on something which I think is great. I mean, there are, I can't imagine how many millions of dollars spent, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars spent on consulting services trying to teach CEOs of big Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 global mm -hmm. companies to do what you just described, which is just shut up and listen, you know, um, <laughs> that the, right. the beauty of being able to check your ego at the door and admit um, the not knowing and just be a sponge. All you really have to do to be a great leader in a business is hire great people and just sit back and let them do what they do. And you can literally just sit there and do essentially nothing but let these people do it. And I mean, you certainly have to be the glue that holds it all together. And I think that, that you're obviously bringing that piece to the table among many other skills. But that is, I think, what when you ask people what makes a good leader, 
in a business sense. I think what you just described is it's almost like a youthful innocence of not coming in guns blazing, here's how we're gonna do things, but tell me how we should do things. I hired you, you know better than me, what can we learn? And it's getting the best out of your team. And if you just do that, you're a highly effective leader, in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of a lot of people who've done a lot of research on the topic. Yeah, and well, and so I, I mean, I agree. I think we've all heard that lesson, and I guess it's harder for some to come by than others. Um, very, you know, you. I want to reference two things, which I think again compounds into my personality and my character and the way that I'm built, the way that I naturally am. Is that um, you know when I was in ICU, you mentioned that throughout the film, you know I'm um, portrayed in the film at least as being a fairly positive individual that was just kind of like glass full all the time and of course I had my shitty days and yet I didn't make any edits on the film I didn't I didn't produce the film um, and and yet it's documentary captured so I largely just like to wait I for the most part wake up fairly what are we doing I'm excited about possibility all right what's the day gonna bring it doesn't matter if I got an hour of sleep or if I got 10 hours of sleep I, you know, that's just how I approach things. And so with business, I, I, it's not that I knew that that was the better style of leadership, but I was ignorant, right? And so in ICU, I was also ignorant. I didn't know how many days I'd be in that bed. I didn't know how many body parts they were going to cut off. I didn't know what was going to happen. And so naturally, I think there's sometimes when you just don't know what's coming on the horizon, you just have to stop into the words of a, a dear friend and mentor of mine. You know, you have to put yourself in a position to win. And I think that we can do on a daily basis. How do I, how am I most optimized? How do I operate most effectively? What is it that I know? What is it that I don't know? And so now when I go into this conversation, I'm going to just share all of the above. And so with work and business, I've been trying to do the same. And effectively, what I call it is, is, I take two circles, and in one circle is all is, is the focus or goals or dreams or ideals for the business, for my business. And say I'm speaking with you, Scott, about collaborating on something, or maybe you're a new hire, and I want to see if it's a good fit, is my first question to you, and really the most, like 40 minutes out of a 45, 50-minute interview, I wouldn't be talking with you unless I knew you had the qualifications already. That's what brought us together. So what's most important is I want to know what you're dreaming about, what your interests are, what your passions are. And we'll take that circle and we'll take the circle that's the business and we'll try to overlap them and we'll see where there's overlap. And let's say you only overlap 1%, whatever that one item is, maybe it's charity, maybe it's organic foods, maybe the overlap is massive and there's 80 things in that little place where the two circles combine. But that's where we should be working together. And that's been my approach in partnership and in our team with the business is, you know, uh, this only works if it works for everybody. So what do you need to get paid? And what what should, you know, what is a, what does a proper workload look like? Like I was so new to all of how to run business and how to, that I had to look at my team and say, well, how should this work? So it works for everybody. And there's a little bit of faith that has to be present. You have to trust that you're, actually starting the conversation with like-minded and like and driven individuals that are there for the same reasons 
and if those reasons don't apply, if those circles don't connect, then we're wasting each other's time and we shouldn't be here, you know? So I think that's, that's where I naturally fell into sort of that style of leadership was, you know, ignorance, ignorance, just not knowing. So I needed to just ask, well, why do you want this job or what's important about an operations position to you or a sales sales position? Why are you in sales? You know? Oh, okay, cool. Well, that meets this criteria for us. So that's what we're going to work on. Well, I love it. And one thing that I'm learning on this journey through talking with people like yourself is that I think the trait that I'm seeing in successful people, and when you define success, I think of it in personal terms and professional terms, just people that have something good going on in their lives um, and really feel like they've achieved some level of success, whatever that means to them, is just a a natural curiosity. a curiosity about the world, about people. And obviously you have that. And it's ironic that it's your curiosity that is probably what led to your catastrophic injuries. Um, But at the same time, it's what's helped Mm -hmm. you become this great leader. So sometimes our worst qualities are also our best qualities. But I don't think you could fault anybody for being naturally curious about the world. And I think it's a really healthy way to be. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, my mom would have probably said it best, you know, she said, well, perhaps in this event, she's talking about my injury, you know, there is a much needed dose of humility that will serve you long into the future, you know? So I, for me, it's, um, I don't know how you shut curiosity down. Jesus, like it's hard, you know, like heaven forbid. Well, I think a lot you know. of people are uh, curiosity springs from a release of fear. I think once you can get past fear, you can become mm. curious. Mm. And I think a lot of people are held back and become not not so curious because they're operating from a position of fear and conditioning. And so if you can learn to get past that and get away from that, I think you'll naturally become curious. And it's a dangerous thing. Be careful what you wish for, because curiosity killed the cat. Right. And it almost killed Eduardo. Well, it's true, true, you know, and um, and yet I think be careful for with what you ask for and therefore be intentional in business and life and wherever you're at, you know, and again, I'm not again, I think when you when you nearly die and I'm only 10 years from that event, if that I'm nine, I'm I'm nine years from that event, um, I guess I just feel far more resolute in the fact that this life is not permanent and it changes so quickly. Um, it can change so quickly. And therefore, I, I mean, gosh, if, if you're wake, if anyone, you know, if you're waking up and you don't like what you do, if you wake up and you are like, damn it, another day at work, I would highly recommend stopping and writing a list of the things that set you on fire the things that you love to do the things that you truly get jazzed about and start the process of figuring out where there's a job that contains all or some of those dreams and goals in that circle and and yet i i mean i'm open to hearing anyone else's opinions you know get a hold of me and and i'd love to hear them because um, maybe there's something about just plugging in and doing the work and getting paid and logging out. And yet, um, I just found that I was, I could not, I was, I was living someone else's truth and not my own truth. 
when I was doing that, you know? Yeah, that's, that's good stuff, Eduardo. And I appreciate you sharing all this with me and with our listeners. And there's so much more we could talk about. So maybe we'll follow up in a, in some time and kind of check in with each other, but it's been a pleasure having you, um, guys go watch Eduardo's movie. Uh, I, I highly recommend charged, right? Charged. Yep. The film is charged. It's a full length feature. It's available in multiple languages and streaming multiple countries. Uh, Amazon, Hulu, Vimeo, iTunes. Yeah. So watch the film, um, follow Eduardo on social media, consume Montana Mex products, consume his wisdom and knowledge and life experience and go out and get it done. And thank you so much for being here, Eduardo. It's really been a pleasure talking with you. Yes, Scott, it's my pleasure. And thanks for introducing me to your community. I hey, appreciate it. Hey, before you sign off dinner, what, what are you serving? Oh, um, you know, I have an elk, I have an elk loin in the fridge and I've also got veal. So we're going to either do pasta or steaks. We'll see. All right. I'm on my way. See you in a few. <laughs> I like it. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye.